Before we get started this week, we want to acknowledge that language around differences in sexual development is still evolving. As always, here at the Incubator, we strive to use language that is inclusive and respectful. Thank you. This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphna, Wednesday. How's it, how's it going? So far, so good. Um, we're going to say this again. We're, we're coming close to the uh, last week before, to the end of the week before the test. Uh, we will be on a two week break after the test, and we'll be back on April 11th with a new format that makes more sense when there's no stress of taking the boards like closer and closer to the day of the exam. Um, and it will be, it will still be very focused on, we'll still keep doing episodes with questions. We'll have uh, a few more interesting episodes where we'll, we'll dig into pathophysiology treatment. We'll have some, some interaction with the audience uh, and we'll tell you more about it uh, in a special episode we'll release during our two week uh, well-deserved vacation. Can I say that's well-deserved? I don't know. I well, I think everybody deserves a vacation. That's exactly right. Yeah, deserve a vacation from us, <laughs> and we deserve a little break. Um, but uh, the incubator podcasts, otherwise, will continue to be releasing episodes, mm-hmm. journal club interviews. We have a ton of cool interviews coming your way. Yeah. Um, we recently interviewed uh, Professor Polin, Richard Polin. Fascinating, fascinating interview. Super cool. Um, there's tons of cool stuff. We, I, I'm starting to feel bad because we're stacking up the interviews because we're recording so much. But uh, yeah, tons of great content coming your way. Uh, so stay tuned. Let's, for now, let's go back to doing questions. Uh, so we're still in the stats question, uh, which are... Well, we're in, the, we're in the pharmacology and stats chapter but right, we're doing right. pharmacology questions yeah. today we're doing pharmacology questions thank you for clarifying um okay we're starting with question five Daphna, the p450 cytochrome the, the p450 cytochrome system right there you start and you're like ugh. Uh, <laughs> in the liver is an important enzyme system for the metabolism of many drugs which one of the following medications can induce the p450 cytochrome system Choice A, erythromycin. Choice B, indomethacin. Choice C, omeprazole. Choice D, phenobarbital. Choice E, ranitidine. Okay. I thought they actually made this question easier than they could have because they gave us all these GI medications, which I know all go together. So I knew that it couldn't be one of them because it would have to be all of them. Uh, Erythromycin, omeprazole, ranitidine. Um, and so those are out and then you just have to know which one you have to remember, which one can induce the P450. I remember that, um, lots of things inhibit phenobarbital. So it's D phenobarbital. Okay. Um, one second. Yeah. So the answer is D, um, Phenobarbital. I only I only knew this answer because I did a lot of work with babies and seizures when I was a fellow, mm-hmm. and so whenever they want phenobarb, like all the other meds, it was a mess. Um, but yeah, phenobarb is the correct answer. So after drug administration, drug modification can occur by oxidation, reduction, hydrolysis, or 
demethylation. Um, these um, modifications are known as phase one reactions and are responsible for 75% of drug alterations. The cytochrome P450 system in the liver is the most important enzyme system involved in phase one reactions. Potential inducers and inhibitors of the cytochrome P450 system are shown in the table below. And so if you go in the answer choices, you have a table where you have the inducers, and that includes phenobarbital, which was the answer in our question, but also phenytoin, rifampin, and dexamethasone. Mm-hmm. I feel like dexamethasone is fair game. Um, mm-hmm. That could also be a... In terms of the inhibitors, we have chloramphenicol, which I've, I've never used, cemetidine, erythromycin, fluconazole, endomethacin, methadone, omeprazole, and ranitidine. Um, alternatively, the, some drugs can be modified by phase two reaction, which involves conjugation with endogenous compounds such as glycine sulfate or glutathione. So, yeah. Uh, inducers of cytochrome P450, the list is dexamethasone, phenobarbital, phenytoin, and rifampin. Sounds good. Um, I like to think that erythromycin like induces the GI tract to, right. to, to move faster. And I remember that it's related to all of these uh, omeprazole, ranitidine, cemetidine. That's a good way of remembering it. I like that. So, I remember that. Um, that's it. Okay. Uh, question six, you have decided to study a drug for the prevention of chronic lung disease. Yay. You would like to confirm the effectiveness of the drug, document side effects, compare its effectiveness with other treatments, and track its safety in a large patient cohort. What type of clinical trial are you initiating? Is it A, phase one, B, phase two, C, phase three, D, phase four? Okay. And actually, I feel like we know more about the phases than ever after yeah. this whole coronavirus debacle. Pandemic, yeah. So <clears throat> um, I think the key here is that um, they wanted to know about effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, what I remember from the, the clinical trials is that early on, phase one and two. So phase one is you, you, you just want to make sure that it's safe and mm-hmm. that there's no major side effects. You want to see like, is, there, is the dose that we think is correct the right dose? So it's not really about testing the medication, really. It's mm-hmm. just making sure that it's not going to kill people. Then you have a phase two, which, again, mostly has to do with safety and um, safety and, and, and effect. But phase three is really when you want to check the effectiveness um, in comparison to other treatments as well, as they mentioned in the STEM. So that's, I, picked, I picked phase three. Phase four is most post-marketing and more following up of the effect. So I think, I think that really described phase three, but I'm sure you'll, you'll break it down better for us. Yeah. I feel like the phases basically just add on to each other. So like the longer the answer, the longer it is to be one of the later phases because um, they, they build on each other. So like you said, phase one is really about evaluating safety, establishing a safe range for dosing. Um, so basically picking the dosing interval. So I feel like that has gotten a lot of press lately because, for example, we've all been waiting, you know, we waited for the dosing trials, especially in children, um, and to document side effects. Phase two, that's when you are starting to bring in a larger cohort after you felt like the drug was safe enough to keep giving to people. Um, And that's when you want to look at um, effectiveness um, and then, again, look for 
other signals about safety. Phase three, you start enrolling even more people. You want to confirm the effectiveness. So you thought it was effective in phase two, but now you have more people. You want to confirm that it's effective. Document side effects. This is where um, you start comparing effectiveness against other treatment modalities for the same condition. And again, continue safety profiling. So phase four is kind of in its own realm because it's testing the intervention after it's been released to the public. That's called post-marketing. So basically, I'd say like we're all in phase four right now mm-hmm. for our COVID vaccine. Um, continue to establish the document, establish and document the benefits and the effectiveness, the risks and the side effects, and appropriate use and indications. Yeah. And if you're interested in that, go check out our episode with Paul Offit, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Paul Offit, who um, yeah, talked to us about vaccine rollout and stuff. So that was really fun. Okay, Daphne. Question 14. Which of the following um, statements is false about first-order kinetics of drug elimination? Choice A, a constant amount of drug per unit of time is excreted regardless of the serum drug concentration. Choice B, the fraction of drug that is eliminated is constant. Choice C, the half-life is independent of drug dosage. Choice D, the rate of drug elimination is directly proportional to the serum drug concentration. Okay. So, I mean, A is basically the definition of zero-order <laughs> drug elimination. Um, and then even if you can't remember which is which, um, B, C, and D kind of all go together. So, um, even if you weren't sure, A is the one that is unlike the others. Yeah, that is correct. It's, uh, yeah. so I don't want to confuse everybody. So I'm just going to go into what yeah. first order kinetics and zero order kinetics are. So first order kinetics of drug elimination is characterized by excretion of a certain percentage of the drug per unit time so that the rate of drug elimination is directly proportional to the serum drug concentration, okay? So you excrete a percentage, right? So a bit like T1, T, uh, the half-life, T1 half, where you just get, you, you lose 50% mm-hmm. every time, right? Of whatever you have. Um, in first-order kinetics, there is an exponential decrease of the serum drug concentration over time, and the half-life is independent of drug dosage. The fraction of drug that is eliminated, elimination rate constant, is constant. Now, when we talk about zero-order kinetics, it's characterized by excretion of a constant amount of the drug per unit time, regardless of the serum drug concentration, which means you lose one milligram every 12 hours, no matter how much you have in your system, right? No matter whether you have a kilo, <laughs> no matter what you have, one milligram left, you'll just keep losing that medication, at the, the, that, that substance, at this specific rate. For zero-order kinetics, the half-life is dependent on drug dosage with larger dosage being cleared more slowly than the fraction of drug that is eliminated is not constant. Um, So, yeah. And most drugs are eliminated by first-order kinetics. Okay, question 25. All of the following, of the following, the mechanism of caffeine in decreasing apnea of prematurity includes all of the following. That's an interesting question. So let's see. 
the mechanism of caffeine in decreasing apnea prematurity includes all of the following except A, adenosine antagonism, B, decreased hypoxic ventilatory depression, C, enhanced diaphragmatic contractility, D, increased laryngeal reflex, E, increased minute ventilation. Yeah, I was surprised you picked that question. It was a kind of a relief to see some respiratory <laughs> stuff. Um, yeah, so... I just think they love asking about caffeine. They love asking about caffeine. Um, and that's a very much, yeah. So I, I, I knew uh, that these choices were true, except choice D, the increased laryngeal reflex, I knew not to be associated with caffeine. So um, I picked D. Yeah, so... Um, the laryngeal reflex is mediated via the superior laryngeal nerve in response to laryngeal mucosal irritation. The laryngeal reflex is already pretty prominent in preterm infants, and it results in an exaggerated inhibition of respiration, which is a bad thing. So an increase in this reflex would result in increased apneic events. So that's the opposite of what we would want from caffeine. Um, the methylxanthines include caffeine, theophylline, and the IV form of theophylline, aminophylline. They are what this says here, competitive antagonists of adenosine, which is thought to play a major role in preventing apnea of prematurity. Um, they're essential and peripheral inhibitory neurotransmitter. Um, adenosine is involved in inhibiting breathing. So they inhibit the inhibitor. The exact mechanisms of adenosine are still being elucidated. All three forms of methylxanthines have been shown to be effective in preventing apnea prematurity, although caffeine is often used because of its wider therapeutic index, minimizing the need to monitor blood levels, though some units do monitor blood levels. Other receptor level actions attributed to caffeine include uh, phosphodiesterase inhibition, stimulation of calcium release from intracellular stores, and inhibition of GABA receptors. Okay, am I next? Mm-hmm. Okay. Question 40. Many drug products have the potential to adversely affect the fetus if used during pregnancy. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has strict regulations about labeling and risk categorization for drug products used in pregnancy. Which of the following statements about these regulations is most accurate? Choice A. A drug product label category A indicates that it has not been shown to have any risk to the fetus during pregnancy following adequate and controlled human studies. Um, choice B. A drug product labeled category B indicates that it has not been shown to have any risk to the fetus during pregnancy following adequate and controlled human study, but animal studies have shown an adverse effect. Choice C. A drug product labeled category C indicates that it has not been shown to have any risk to the fetus during pregnancy following animal studies, but no human studies done. Choice D, a drug product labeled category D indicated that it has that it is contraindicated during pregnancy. And choice E, the alphabetical risk categories A, B, C, D, and X should not be displayed on drug on drug product labeling. Yeah, you got we did all of that work, and then you're like, phew. We don't use that system anymore. Uh, so it's E, thankfully. Yes, it's it's E. Um, so but this question still comes up a lot because I think they want people to know. That I doubt that this is going to come up. I don't know. We'll if, I had to, if I was a betting man, I would say this is, uh, <laughs> this is not going to come up. 
because the only way they can ask, they could, the only way they would be able to ask that question is exactly in this format. Um, and it feels it feels a bit low yield, but it's something that I think I, I even myself had forgotten mm-hmm. because we don't mm-hmm. deal with that frequently. Yeah, so. I mean, I got through all of the answers before saying like, oh yeah, we don't right. use it anymore. <laughs> So yes, yeah, so starting uh, June 30th, 2015, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration uh, content and format of labeling for human prescription drug and biological products requirement for pregnancy and lactation labeling, referred to as pregnancy and lactation labeling rule, came into effect. And basically, this uh, required uh, labeling to provide a summary description of the risk of a product during pregnancy and lactation, the evidence supporting this description, and additional relevant information for clinicians to counsel their patients. Basically, they did away with the, the coding of A, B, C, D, and X, and now they actually are writing it out in plain words so that you could avoid any confusion, right? Um, because, yeah, some people may, may mistake a category for another, and they thought it was clearer and more straight to the point. Um, and that's what they say in the answer choices. These categories were removed as it was determined that they lead to confusion over and oversimplified the issues without significant benefit. Yeah. That's it. That's it for us today. All right. I think this was fun. See you tomorrow. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.